A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the cathedral. Normally, at this point in an event, I would be welcoming hundreds of you under the dome as we readied ourselves to listen to our speaker. But of course, this is not possible at the moment. So instead, we welcome you online. You are as welcome online as you would be in person. This is the second of our online conversations. And today, I will be talking with John Swinton. Next month, I have a conversation set up with Bishop Sarah, Bishop of London, in which she reflects on her new Lent book, Rooted in Love. But today, I'm talking to John Swinton, who is a former psychiatric nurse and currently Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at the University of Aberdeen. John is a well-known thinker and writer, and one of his previous books, Dementia, won the Ramsey Prize a few years ago. John's most recent book is called Finding Jesus in the Storm, and it is a reflection on spirituality and theology and how we as Christians respond to people with mental health challenges. Our conversation is incredibly wide-ranging, moving from lamentation to finding joy in suffering, from exploring what it means to have Christ-like friendships, to thinking about our church communities and how we make them a place of safety and welcome for people with mental health challenges. We also talk about the more important things that we can learn from people who are going through challenges in their mental well-being. We hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as we enjoyed having the conversation in the first place. John, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today. Um, the book that you wrote is all about mental health challenges. And for me, I think one of the really interesting things is to observe quite how much we struggle talking about mental health challenges, whether it's in wider society or actually in the church. Why do you think it is that we find it so difficult to talk about mental health challenges? I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, one being that mental health challenges, mental health issues tend to be highly stigmatized. So unlike cancer or pneumonia, uh, which don't really carry very much stigma. To have a mental health diagnosis is oftentimes assumed to be a deeply negative thing, something people don't want. And so therefore people tend to avoid it for a number of different a number of different levels. Um, I think that's part of the reason, but I think another part of the reason is, is kind of culturally, we have a bit of a fixation about uh, the importance of our mind, the importance of intellectual clarity and reason. So much so that sometimes I think we associate that with an understanding of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being is to think clearly, to be autonomous, not to be dependent, to have conventional thoughts. So when you encounter experiences that kind of push against all of these things, then it's very countercultural and countercultural to the way that we think about what human beings should be like under normal circumstances. So I think that stigma, that cultural way of framing humanness all feeds into a kind of negative persona in relation to mental health, which you don't really get in the same way for physical health. Well, there are some physical health conditions that are stigmatized. So I think that's at least part of the reason. 
Yeah, and I wonder whether um, a lot of us worry about um, what it says about ourselves, don't we? You know, it's come in a way we, because of the stigma, um, we worry about actually what people might think of us if we ever um, admit to having um, mental health concerns at all. Absolutely. I mean, stigma is, you know, when you reduce uh, a person to one part of them, you know, so it's an idea that comes from uh, the Greek slave trade. So Irving Goffman says, whereby uh, a slave owner would buy a slave and put a mark on them, and then you'd be reduced to the size of that mark. You're no longer a person, no longer a name. You're just a, a, a chattel, something that belongs to somebody else. And mental health labels can sometimes function in that function in that way. Suddenly, you're you're you go into your your work one day and you're drawn. Then you have a diagnosis and you suddenly become a schizophrenic. And so you lose your whole identity, whatever a schizophrenic actually is. So you lose your, your whole identity. So therefore, it it, uh, it becomes problematic. But it becomes problematic for individuals as well because that cultural stigma that uh, that occurs. You, uh, also occurs at a personal level. So you self-stigmatize. And so the, the danger for people with mental health challenges is not only that they're stigmatized by others, but they stigmatize themselves. And so at the back of people's minds, I think, is this, this idea that if I admit to certain things, then I'll become the stigmatized one. Uh, and that causes tensions and anxieties in itself, quite apart from the issues that people may be facing. Um, I absolutely loved your book, Finding Jesus in the Storm. Um, as you know, I read loads of books, but this one really, really kind of struck me as saying something vitally important to us, um, particularly at the moment, but generally as well. Um, tell us a little bit about why you decided to write it and what you hope people will take away from it when they've read it. Well, I'll, I'll do it the other way around, if that's all right, Paula. I mean, I think I, what I'd like for people to take away from it is the fact that people are just people, that when people encounter mental health challenges, they don't become someone else or something else. They simply be, they simply remain individuals who um, uh, long for friendship, community, love, acceptance. And so moving that barrier away from somehow that people with severe mental health challenges in particular are different from all of us is a primary intention of this book and recognizing that all of us have some kind of issues. It's just that we need certain help to enjoy the things that all of us want to, to enjoy. Why I wrote the books is a, is a slightly different uh, question. I guess, well, my background is in, in mental health. And so for uh, 16 years or so, I worked as a mental health nurse, and then I, I, I also worked as a, a nurse with people with intellectual disabilities. So all of my formative years uh, were with people who perceived the world in a different way from perhaps uh, conventional ways of understanding the world. So that kind of shaped and formed me to understand mental health issues in a slightly different way. But the thing that always struck me and, and still does strike me is the difference between the way that people articulate their experiences, their mental health experiences, and the way in which we oftentimes formulate them uh, through diagnosis or through attitudes or through assumptions. Uh, and it always struck me that when I would listen to people's stories, um, I would learn things that I wouldn't have known otherwise if I had just gone with the standard account of what I thought should be going on with somebody who has bipolar disorder or somebody who lives with schizophrenia. Uh, and it was these second narratives that I thought were really interesting. And then I began to, to think about, well, uh, who's thinking about uh, these things theologically and, and how are people addressing these things? 
And very often people would begin with standard diagnostic criterion uh, and then build a theology on top of that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, with diagnostic criteria. There's nothing wrong with mental health professions. They're fantastic and they do great work and it's really important. And I emphasize that this is not an alternative perspective. It's like a complementary perspective. However, if you, make it, if you build your, your theology on uh, a diagnosis that comes from a different set of stories, if you like, a professional set of stories, then you will end up with an interest in theology, but it's not necessarily a theology that incorporates these other stories. And so I was really interested in, in, in what happens in people's lives before they, their, their experiences ha- carries a diagnosis and we have all the theories and assumptions that come with that. These personal stories are quite different. And I just think, thought uh, that it'd be very interesting and hopefully useful to listen carefully to these stories, the stories of people as they've experienced in their mental health challenges, specifically in relation to faith, uh, and to see what that looked like. And then to think about how we could build good pastoral strategies on these different ways of describing the experience of mental health. And if people wanted to do a similar thing in their own lives, um, how, what advice would you offer to people? Because I think what I really was struck by were the deep listening that you've done um, to all sorts of different people's stories. And it struck me when I was reading the book how rarely we do that we don't really talk to people enough about what's going on for them um have you got any advice on how people might be able to listen like you listened in order to be able to hear the stories properly well i think that it's it's important to be aware that there are various stories within uh, uh society about what mental health challenges are how they should respond to that uh, and whether we notice it or not the way in which we conceptualize or understand mental health issues is profoundly shaped by the various stories that come to us consciously or unconsciously from uh, from culture and from society and from the media and from all these places. Um, so I think if, if you're going to listen carefully, you need to be reflexive. In other words, you need to think about why you're thinking the way that you're thinking and to be able to put to one side some of the caricatures and stereotypes that drive your understanding of mental health issues and try just to open yourself up to listen to the person before you. And that's why I, I say that one of the things that I, I want people to take away from this particular book is that the fact that uh, people are just people. And if you listen to people's stories as a person rather than somebody with a, a mental health diagnosis, then these other perspectives come to light. And if you think about people's faith lives in relation to the experiences that are happening, then a lot of really interesting insights and new possibilities begin to emerge, not simply for you understanding the person, but also for you understanding your tradition in a different way in the light of the experiences that, uh, in this case, your brothers and sisters in Christ are having around their mental health and kind of unconventional ways of perceiving certain things. A lot of people outside of Christianity um, would say that we are crazy, maybe fantasists. Um, Would you say that Christianity is good or bad for your mental health? I think that's an interesting question, because many people are crazy and fantasists, but that's... uh, (laughs) That's another matter. (laughs) (laughs) That's for another interview. um, Well, I think that what 
religion is a very powerful source of knowledge and a very powerful source of identity formation which can be used for good and for use for bad. So within the context of mental health, it can be extremely helpful, but it can also be very difficult. You know, if you, for example, have depression and you start to read scripture and you start to have develop like a negative hermeneutic, a way of misinterpreting or, or a negative way of understanding the scriptures, then that won't necessarily be helpful. And indeed, sometimes it can be extremely unhelpful. So I think my general sense is that religion, and particularly embodied religion within communities, is extremely useful for all of us, including people with mental health challenges. Some doctrines can be problematic, and some of the ways in which we uh, formulate uh, our, our understandings of who God is can be problematic for people with mental health challenges, as they can for everybody in that sense. So my sense is just to bear in mind that this is a powerful source of knowledge that can be for good, for bad. But overall, I think it's definitely for good. And if we wanted to take really close care of our Christian communities and make sure that we made them as positive as possible for people, um, are, do you have any tips or guidelines about what we might do um, within church communities, within small group communities, um, about how we actually relate to each other well? Yeah, well, I, uh, there's a couple of things that I would, I would say. Um, first being that in relation to mental health issues, um, I think we normally think about them quite rightly in terms of pastoral care. Uh, and sometimes people think of them in terms of ethics and also, but say pastoral care, right? So we need to work out caring strategies to help people who are going through psychological trauma. And that's a good thing because all of, all of us need to have that. Right? But I always think that a, a more constructive way of thinking about it, or a more rich, a richer way of thinking about it, is in relation to discipleship. So, if you think about somebody who has a mental health challenge, or somebody who has a, a disability, whatever whatever type that may be, think about it in time, terms of discipleship. How can we enable this person who has a vocation and a calling to be with Jesus? to fulfill that vocation and calling, even in the midst of the difficulties that they may be going through. So if we shift that uh, focus, not away from pastoral care, but have that parallel of, uh, understanding of discipleship and vocation, then that breaks down some of the barriers. We're not just doing things for these people, it's something that we do for all of us, because that's what we're supposed to be doing in the body of Christ, is to, to be together, and all of us together in that sense. Uh, and then if you break that down a little bit more and think about uh, friendship, you know, uh, many, many years ago, I did my PhD on uh, schizophrenia and Christian friendship. And looking at the role of friendship in uh, deconstructing certain aspects of, of, of schizophrenia and opening up space within Christian communities for people with schizophrenia to find friendship and, and, and a welcome. And I focused in that on the friendships of, of Jesus and how radically countercultural these friendships are. So most of our friendships very often are, are most of our friends are very similar to ourselves. So we have a circle of friends that are, have the same views and the same perspectives and the same interests. And you can see that very intensely in something like Facebook, where all, all our friends are about to believe the same thing. Um, but Jesus, who is God, comes into the world uh, and offers friendship to human beings. So the principle of the incarnation is that Jesus, who is God, who is radically other from than, than anything that, that we have on earth, 
becomes a, a human being and offers friendship. And in John's gospel, uh, he, uh, Jesus shifts the identity of, of his disciples by moving them from uh, servants to friends. I no longer call you servants, now I call you friends. So discipleship becomes friendship. And so beginning to think how we can nurture Christ-like friendship that takes seriously the alienation and marginalization that society places upon particular individuals is a beginning point for that kind of formation of a, a Christ-like community. And one other thing that I always find interesting is that, you know, we often talk about Jesus being friends with the tax collectors and, and sinners uh, and sitting with the people in the margins. But actually, when you think about it, when Jesus sits with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, he shifts the margins. And so therefore, the church here, or, or what God is doing, is here. And over here, the church may be doing some lots, lots of interesting things, but it can easily miss the point. Now, Christ-like friendship helps us not to easily miss the point and to recognize where Jesus is. And all of us know, at least in principle, how to be friends with other, one another. Now, I'm not suggesting that we befriend one another, but if our community can be a place where friendship becomes a possibility, then we can move towards the, poss the possibility that, that accepting communities of welcome and belonging are a reality. One of the things I really love about your writing one is various phrases that you use that are rich and deep and expansive. And one of the phrases I really loved in this book is your phrase, the thinning of spirituality. I found it really striking. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about why you used it and what you mean by it? Yes, well, I used it because I've spent a lot of time looking at spirituality in different contexts, particularly within healthcare. Um, and I've also also done quite a lot of interesting work uh, across cultures, looking at how uh, people in other cultures manifest their spirituality, like Maori culture or Aboriginal culture, which is big, rich and thick and disruptive and narrative and really interesting. Um, and then, you know, it's just struck me that the kind of spirituality that sometimes we focus on, and particularly in relation to healthcare, is missing in some senses from some of the thickness of spirituality that you discover in other places. And one of the reasons for that is that for health, for spirituality to work itself out within an institution like the health service, which is designed to offer services free at the point of service to, to all people, irrespective of your income, irrespective of your background, services provided. And so that provides a very, or presents a very particular culture within which um, that which goes on within the health service needs to fit the criteria of being for all faiths and all, and none. So it needs to be accessible to everybody. Um, uh, so if you think about something, medicine, you know, you don't have an antibiotic that works only for one person, it works for everybody. And that's that's a general principle of the health service. So when you bring in spirituality, it needs to fit within that. And so we have a, 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 a kind of understanding of spirituality, which is in generic terms, a, a sense of meaning and purpose and value and hope, uh, and for some people, uh, God. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, because that's, that speaks into the system and that actually does good work in the system, which can become over, overly technologized. But there's a thinness about that because basically uh, it means that 
spirituality is what you want spirituality to be. And for some people, that will be a big, thick description of, of uh, that comes from their history, from their culture, from wherever it is. But for other people, it'll be a thinner description. But if we focus too much on the thin or description, I think we lose certain things. So my encouragement in, in the book is to thicken our understanding of, of spirituality within the health service, but also within beyond the health service, and to begin to think about how we can re-narrate some of these spiritualities in ways that are full-bodied and, and, and open up space for uh, certain forms of narrative that sometimes get uh, lost if we keep a thin, if, we're, if our definition of spirituality is, is too thin. And so, in other words, all institutions have a spirituality and we have to fit into that. We just have to be careful that that fitting in doesn't mean that we thin down things in a way that can be uh, detracted from the goodness of it. Mm. So kind of a disruptive thickness is what you're arguing for in a way, which is a pleasing idea. I I shall feel that. (laughs) Um, In the West, we very easily imagine that happiness and suffering are opposites. So if you're suffering, there's no happiness to be had at all. And again, one of the really striking things about your book is not you don't, of course, use the word happiness, but you do talk about joy and the importance of joy and finding joy in suffering, um, which for many of us seems quite an alien idea. Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I mean, the... the, uh... My, my, culturally, we, we tend to think about uh, our aspirations in terms of happiness. So we want to be happy, we want to be elated, we want to be pleased with the way that the world is, which makes it highly problematic if you have something like depression, where happiness comes and, and sometimes happiness is not there for extended periods of time. And so what I try to, to make the point is that when uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, doesn't list um, happiness as a gift of the Spirit, he lifts joy as a gift of the spirit. So happiness is a, a fleeting emotion. It comes and it goes, and it's dependent on all sorts of circumstances. But joy is something different. Joy is something that uh, it relates to having the possibility of an eternal hope, even in the midst of the difficulties that you're encountering. So when James uh, and when Jesus speaks about joy, it always includes suffering, and it always includes, to some extent, the the cross and and the the implications of that, really. Um, But ultimately, Jesus is our joy. And so it's the durability that you find in the hope of Jesus that enables you not to enjoy your suffering, but for your suffering to have uh, the possibility of uh, finding hope in its midst in that way. So separating joy from happiness, not, not, there's nothing wrong with being happy. Everybody likes to be happy, but it's just not going to happen for all of us. But joy, I think, theologically, is a, a much richer and a much thicker term that helps us to understand uh, how we can begin to engender hope, even in the darkness of, of certain forms of mental health challenge. John, have you got advice for us about how we talk well or responsibly or helpfully about finding joy in suffering? I remember there's various times in my life when I've been going through a really, really hard time and invariably a Christian will sidle up to me and say something really crass like there is a silver lining in this. It's God's will for your life. Um, God doesn't give you more than you can cope with those kind of cliched phrases. Um, And the response for me is always that I want to slap them or ring their 
their neck because it feels so insensitive. Um, have you got any advice for us about how we talk to people about this in a way that isn't insensitive, but actually gets into the heart of what you're talking about here? Yeah, I, mean, I think that um, we need to think seriously about the issue of lamentation and the issue of darkness within the Christian tradition. So lamentation, I think, is really important. If you look at the Psalms of Lament in particular, something like 40% uh, of the Book of Psalms are, are lamentations. So there's a language in there for articulating sadness and brokenness and alienation. Uh, and it's a language that we need to learn. So alongside of the joy, as in happiness, that we articulate as we think about God and as we worship together, building in lamentation to our, our regular worship practices gives us a language to articulate, which does, which means that we that allows us not to avoid uh, the pain and the darkness of suffering. And sometimes the, the way in which we respond to people who are suffering is actually a way of defending ourselves to avoid the pain of and the confusion that suffering is allowed in the context of people's lives when God is all-powerful, all-loving, and so on and so forth. But getting back to that idea of thinking about how we deal with darkness, you know, there's a temptation, and it kind of, it's kind of caught up in, in the kind of... Um, expression or kind of articulation of support that you're talking about there. There's a temptation to move straight from the cross to the res resurrection. Um, and the, the resurrection is fantastic. It's, 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 a, it's a source of our hope. But there's that middle place, that middle Holy Saturday space, which is a place of darkness where you're caught between the cross and the resurrection and nothing is moving. And that's a very real uh, ex experience for many people. And many people living with certain forms of mental health challenge to be in that darkness and maybe remain in that darkness for extended periods of time. So what we need to do, I think, is to talk about that, to preach about that, to sing about that, and to enable all the congregation, all the people of God, to recognize that this experience of darkness being between the cross and the resurrection is a reality within the body of Christ because there are people within the body of Christ who are experiencing that. And it's not just a matter of getting over it so you get to the resurrection. It's a matter of understanding it and working through how you can understand where God is in the midst of that. And where God is when the psalmist says, my darkness is my only companion. It's a prayer, but it's a prayer of darkness. So my sense is that we need to be open to that idea of lamentation and taking seriously that space between the cross and the resurrection and thinking through how we can preach and teach and sing into these difficult spaces. John, we've talked already about one of the really key things that happens in this book is that it's a collection of your conversations with people who have experienced yeah. mental health challenges. And I think one of the most captivating things about the book are the number of stories that you tell of people and their real experiences. What have you learned about God from the many conversations that you had with people in order to write this book? I've learned a lot of things about God. I learned a lot of surprising things. One of the one thing I I, I learned, which was, was interesting, was having conversations with people living with depression, and you know, to a man and to a woman, people talked about this idea of being down in the depth of brokenness and darkness, and feeling that God had abandoned them. Um, and now the temptation there is to say, well, of course, God doesn't abandon you. 
um, which I actually think is, is probably true. But when you when you think about the way that God functions in, in Scripture, very often He seems to disappear at points. He seems to hide. Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the God who hides. Uh, and there are real periods when God seems to be absent. And then even you know, if you think about Jesus' cry from the, the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, there's no answer to that. It's a, it's a genuine experience of abandonment. So that sense of darkness, that sense of abandonment, there's not something that's simply tied into pathology. It's something that runs through the whole of Scripture. So when somebody finds themselves in the, the depth of depression in that sense, their experience is nothing, not something that's apart from the, the tradition. It's actually a part of the tradition. And so a, it's, it's wrong for people to point in and say, this is, this is a consequence of, of your sin or something you've done, because it's not. Because it's, this is a, a very, if you like, relatively common spiritual experience. And it's wrong for the individual themselves to think that God has abandoned them because something that, that they've done. It's just a sense of darkness that runs at certain points in Scripture. And that, that's that's quite helpful because it kind of destigmatizes the darkness in that way. And it helps us to see that even these deep, dark experiences are actually tied in with uh, our tradition in important ways. Uh, but it also helps in some senses for you to identify with Jesus in the, in the darkness. Because it may be that God has that sense that God has abandoned you, but thinking about Jesus and the cross recognizes that Jesus goes through that with you, and so you have that really interesting experience of a sense of abandonment, but a surety that Jesus is with us in the midst of that. And I found that very helpful and very challenging, obviously, very helpful. And these kinds of insights from people's experiences, um, I just found fascinating, but also spiritually uh, enlivening or deepening for me. And you've talked about scripture quite a lot in our conversation and the importance of scripture and how it's helped shape your attitude towards mental health challenges. We do need to talk about the difficult passages as well. You know, those yeah. passages where people are portrayed as having demons that need being cast out. Um, how do you respond to those more difficult passages of scripture in this context? Yeah, well, I, 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 the way I respond is that I, I don't really see the connection between mental health challenges and uh, the way that the demonic is described in the Gospels. Um, so th first I would say that it always amazes me and disappoints me how willing people are to point the finger of, of the demonic at people who are going through really difficult questions, experiences. So people are, are maybe hearing voices or having a really difficult time. People will point and say, that must be the demonic. And yet at the same time, people don't point upwards towards the, the realm of politics and economics, these realms where Jesus, Paul says, you know, the powers really work themselves out. It seems it's much easier to point your finger at somebody who's weak and vulnerable than to point up at, your, at the powerful. So I think there's some a realignment that we need to do about the way that we ascribe the demonic to anything within the world. But actually, when you look at, uh, if you take the DSM-5 criterion, which is the, uh, what psychiatrists and psychologists use to make mental health diagnoses, if you take the, the descriptions that are placed in, uh, that you see in uh, the DSM-5 and place them against the uh, accounts of uh, 
the demonic in the Gospels, you'll see that they're they're very different things. Uh, 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 just they, they, uh, intuitively, you may say that, 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 that it's an obvious thing to do this, but if you place these two things together, they're doing different things. They're different experiences, and they have different uh, causes in that sense. So I think it's not too difficult if you if you want to do the work to show quite clearly that. Uh, mental health challenges are, are not demonic in, in that sense, and it, plus a lot of the, I mean, a good deal of the demonic in the, in the gospels is physical, and we don't normally ascribe the physical uh, uh, conditions to the demonic. So there's something about the mental that seems to drive it to, to draw us into thinking slightly differently in relation to the physical. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, and it's a rather challenging thought, isn't it? Um, us pointing the fingers at those who are powerful and calling out the demonic in that, um, um, tempting to get um, sidetracked by thinking about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, towards the end of the book, you talk about um, mental health and healing and your view of healing in the context of mental health challenges. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thinking in that area? Yes. Um... I think one of the interesting things, that, or one of the challenging things is to try to work out what healing means in the context of the Bible, uh, and particularly in the context of the Gospels. Um, and it seems to me that there's a, there's a tension between healing and curing, which you can actually see even in Jesus' uh, ministry of curing in that sense. And if you take something like the, uh, the, the woman with the issue of blood, so Jesus touches, uh, sorry, the woman touches Jesus' cloak and she is healed of her hemorrhage. And then the, you have this conversation between Jesus and the woman. And then at the end of that encounter, he sends her off and says, your faith has made you, or your faith has healed you. In other words, it wasn't until she recognized who Jesus was that she was healed. So the curing was wonderful and it's, it's a, an act of compassion, but the point of it was the healing. The point of it was reconnection with God and then reconnection ultimately with the community. And you, you can see that in a lot of Jesus' miracles that the point of it is reconnection with self, God and community. And so if we think about that healing as that idea of reconnection, then it opens up a, a lot of space for a broader understanding of, of healing than simply curing. And so when we're thinking about the way that scripture functions, we're thinking, how does this help us? How does this help an individual to be reconnected to themselves, reconnected to others, and reconnected to God? Which means that if, if at particular moments in time, people find it difficult to read scripture, or if people find that certain passages are causing them serious psychological uh, difficulties, the right thing to do is for people to put that to one side for a moment, for other people to pick up the scripture reading and help that person to develop a healthy hermeneutic that reconnects them with God and self and community. So scripture becomes a source of healing if you use it sensitively, if you use it um, uh, wisely. Likewise, for your liturgy, liturgy is intended to connect you with yourself, with God and with others in that, in that way. Um, if your liturgical practices are exclusive, for example, if all you do is sing happy songs all day long, 
then uh, that you may feel better, but those within your community who are struggling with depression, who are struggling with anxiety, are not going to be able to lock into the corporate worship that you're going through. So thinking through how you can develop a healing liturgy that um, incorporates all of God's people and enables all of God's people to worship together in different ways with different forms of emotion, then you find yourself with a, a healing liturgy. And so there's lots of ways that we can use the practices of the church to create a healing community in that sense. Now, I'm not, it's not, I'm not anti-cure. If God wants to cure people, that's fantastic. But for the most part, most of us will be seeing healing if, if, we, if we shift our focus a little bit. And that opens up space for new forms of relationships and new possibilities for community and practice. John, I really like that idea about gentleness, being gentle with ourselves and gentle with other people in reading scripture and in liturgy. And um, for me, I never forget that moment when somebody told me that actually it was okay not to understand everything. I didn't have to have an opinion about everything. And equally importantly, if there was a part of scripture or an experience in liturgy that made me feel profoundly uncomfortable, I was allowed to feel uncomfortable and tell someone that I was uncomfortable rather than just thinking there was something wrong with me. Um, have you got any ideas about why it is in church communities that we so easily rush towards um, not feeling able to do that? Is it a lot of certainty or something else, do you think? I think it can be a lack of certainty or, or a need for clarity or a, a fearfulness of ambiguity. We're not, we're, you know, we're modern people, uh, and even within the church we're modern people, that we don't like mystery. And we tend to try to turn mystery into puzzles and solve it. Uh, and when that happens, then those who come with genuine ambiguity find it difficult to find a space. But I think also, I mean, I think in, in, one way of framing the whole issue in relation to how we should maybe think is, you know, when, when Jesus is asked what the sum of the law and the prophets is, he says, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Um, and all three of these dimensions, I think, are fundamental to the kind of healing that we've been we've been talking about. And loving yourself is profoundly important. Uh, I don't mean to, you have to become a narcissist, but recognizing that uh, that you should avoid things and situations which are damaging to you, because you know God doesn't want you to be damaged by particular ways of thinking or particular ways of, of uh, uh, taking a particular attitudes. Uh, and the only way you can do that by, is by uh, having enough discernment to recognize what damages you and to be able to use that to, to wisely as, as the way that you've suggested. And that enables you to have good relationships with your neighbor and ultimately allows you to have good relationships with God. So self-awareness and self-love, I think, is important if, in relation to making these kind of decisions as to what's good for you and what's not good for you. And I think in this current pandemic, it's become really clear to so many of us that actually taking good care of ourselves can be more difficult than we thought. We often just spin along in our lives, don't we? And don't think about things too deeply. But being in lockdown has made us recognize some of the challenges within ourselves. Is there any advice that you have for us about how you do take good care of yourself in a particularly stressful time such as we're in at the moment? 
Well, a couple of things I would, I would want to think about. The first thing is that one of the things that the pandemic has thrown up is how interconnected we are. Um, but it's also reminded us of how disconnected many people are within our society. And, you know, I was struck by the, the whole um, idea of social distancing and physical distancing and how we all found it difficult. Um, and I, I've spoken to a number of people living with mental health disabilities or mental health challenges or disabilities who make the point that social isolation and social distancing is the norm for them. In other words, people are constantly social, socially distancing from them. And that's the way in which they, their lives have lived in that sense of loneliness and alienation. And one woman said to me, the irony of my situation is that with the coming of the pandemic, people come to visit me now. They never visited me before, but now they come to visit me. Um, and that, that, that's really troublesome. It takes a pandemic to go and visit your, your neighbor. So I think that one thing we can learn is the need for interconnectedness uh, and the need to notice those within our communities who are disconnected and who become even more disconnected because of the the, the restrictions of the, the pandemic. So I think looking after your neighbor is, is probably your first thing. Looking after yourself is extremely important uh, for the reasons I, I mentioned before. So in terms of looking after yourself, I mean, one of the things I've noticed, and I can, this is a personal thing, is that the pandemic causes a great deal, well, actually the pandemic and the American election causes a great deal of anxiety. And that coupled with 24 hour news, is just a very toxic environment. I decided not so long ago to switch off and to, or to delete my new news app from my, my iPad and my iPhone because I was just getting overwhelmed with information, some of which was true, some of which was not true. And you get to the stage where you have no idea what's going on. And then that just generates anxiety and a, and a sense of isolation and uncertainty about the future. So I think the first thing I would say is manage your social media and your media in general uh, and try to avoid those situations and those places where anxiety provoking. Um, uh, and that, that means maybe switching off Twitter for a while if you're a Twitter person. Uh, Facebook's okay because, as I said earlier on, Facebook's full of your own friends, so you design your own universe in there, so it's great. But Twitter's slightly different. So managing social media, managing the things that you, wa wa that you watch, making sure that you have someone to talk to about any anxieties or troubles that you may go even through because there's nothing more unhealthy than being trapped in a loop of your own negative thinking and that idea of toxic thinking where you take small things and you catastrophize is, is very, very easy to do in the context of the pandemic and the context of being locked down or, or being opened up or whatever it is that you may be at this moment in time. So self-care, I think, means just uh, minimizing the sources of anxiety that you have and maximizing your opportunities for communication with people that can listen to you and can put your thoughts in the right place and can help you to move on even in the midst of what's a very unusual situation. John, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure.